Hello and welcome back again to the Digital Sociology Podcast with me, Chris Till. In this episode, I'm talking to Scott Timkey about his new book, which is on uh, algorithms and politics, uh, and particularly in the, the context of American politics. Uh, I'll get into more detail about the book with you and the, and the themes in the interview, but it's, uh, it's a great book and uh, I highly recommend it. I've put links up to where you can get hold of the book and find out more about Scott's work um, in the podcast description and on my blog. Uh, as ever, I'm very keen to get feedback on uh, this episode or, or anything else that's going on um, in, in other episodes. Uh, you can find my blog at thisisnotasociology.blog. You can follow me on Twitter at Chris H. Till. Um, and so uh, look forward to hearing from you. So over to the, the interview with Scott. So I'm back again here with uh, uh, Scott Tinky, and um, so uh, Scott is someone I've um, had on my my other podcast. So if you if you listened um, to that, to the kind of social theory podcast, and you, you may have heard him um, on there as well. But uh, Scott is talking to me today um, about uh, um, principally about a, a book he's just he's just written. Um, the book is called uh, Algorithms and the End of Politics: The Shaping of Technology in the 21st Century American Life. Uh, and it was published, um, as I speak, earlier this year, February 2021. Um, and um, it's his second book. And it's it's a really great uh, piece of work. I think I found it extremely kind of insightful. It's um, extremely kind of interesting. And it's I think it's really having a big influence on how I think about these uh, these issues around around algorithms, around data, their intersection with politics and with capitalism. Um, so I'm really looking forward to kind of digging into some of that with Scott um, in a minute. So just as uh, as a little intro, Scott is a comparative historical sociologist with an interest in race, class, uh, technology and modernity. Um, he's currently a research associate with the University of Johannesburg's Centre for Social Change and also a fellow at the University of Leeds Centre for African Studies. So hi, Scott. Nice to speak to you again. Hi, Chris. No, absolutely delighted to be back here. Good. Uh, so, um, so we'll be talking, uh, say, mostly about about Scott's book and some of the kind of the the, the context of that. Um, so, it's on my reading, it's it's a really kind of detailed analytical um, uh, critique of the the kind of the current situation we're in. I think in terms of um, the increasing influence of Kind of algorithmic processes of data and datafication and how they're kind of intersecting um i suppose with um contemporary life but specifically kind of i suppose uh, politics political life and and, and and capitalism um and i just wondered if you could tell us a little bit scott about how you came to write this book and why where that focus came from I mean, there's always sort of many sources for a book, but I think the thing that, struck, that stands out to me the most when I think back to it is, as you say, the situation we have at the moment. There's an incredible amount of celebrationary culture around technology, what its benefits are. And even while at the edges, there are some sort of like pushbacks, mostly they're sort of refinements and reformist rather than trying to sort of appreciate this new development uh, on a grand scale. I'm very much interested in sort of like this uh, kind of Polanian grand transformation and how technology is part of this grand transformation 
of social life. And so to me, datification as a process is on par with industrialization. And if we had to think about the types of grand changes in industrialization uh, accrued over almost 200 years, I think we need to start thinking about the types of changes that datification are going to be doing on the same type of timescale and the same type of impact. And even while the book sort of focuses on politics, like the types of things that I'm uh, trying to talk about sort of uh, cross into personhood, culture, everyday life. Uh, so it's not just things of political economy. It's much more wider than that. It's uh, about how we think about how we live these days and where we want to be, what kind of future we imagine for ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, and I think you get at that really well, that kind of that, that, that way in which... Um, of course, you know, the personal is always political, uh, you know, in broad terms, but um, particularly the way in which our lives have become datified, you know, we've been turned into, into uh, well, our actions, our interactions um, um, have been turned into data. Um, and, but the way in which that comes towards the, the way in which that that kind of feeds into kind of political life, I suppose. So there's a kind of a very kind of there's quite a specific way in which that's occurring today. That that relationship between the personal and the political, um, I suppose. And um, and as you say, that 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 kind of shaping of um, personhood that, that happens in the process is really is really fascinating. I think that gets to one of the themes that I'm trying to speak about in the book is just how much should the algorithms mediate all of our experiences, whether they be political, economic exchanges, cultural encounters, you know, new forms of urbanization are taking place, and then even how we sort of present ourselves within public. It's no more case of, of we're, we're no longer sort of like indifferent to what other people are thinking about. It's no longer that kind of civic indifference that uh, Giddens spoke about, but rather there's a deep appreciation for what other people are looking at, how they're looking upon us, how we present ourselves to them, how these things get likes and shares, and, and the, how that sort of validates our actions and behaviors, our thoughts and beliefs. So I'm interested that you, you, you put the word algorithms in the title, and obviously that's a central, it's a central part of your book. Um, uh, but of course, there is a lot of discussion around those other things we've been talking about, about data and, and, uh, and that kind of thing. Um, why why is it that you put algorithms at the centre there? Uh, would you say um, in terms of how you're presenting your your argument? Uh, to be trite, search engine optimization. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I tease, but uh, one of the things is that I think we have a bit of an imprecise language about sort of data politics and the types of objects of study. Uh, and the types of uh, uh, ramifications they have. We have platform studies, we have social network studies, we have um, uh, you know, people who look at code and algorithms. Um, we have all this sort of very uh, pluralistic language around you know, computation and very little of it's very precise. And that's not because people you know, aren't smart enough, it's really sort of speaking about how rapidly things are changing you know, two, uh, sorry, 10 years ago, no one spoke about platform studies, and now it's a staple of uh, internet culture conferences. So these things are readily changing very, very quickly. And so, you know, I decided to put the sort of the mechanisms, 
the procedures of making decisions sort of in a, in a title to sort of draw our attention, not actually to the objects of study per se, but rather the decision-making behind our objects of study. How do things become present and how do they exist for us to, to study them? How do we use them? So on and so forth. Again, it's not a very precise answer, but it sort of speaks to an area that itself is not very precise, despite sort of the computer scientists maybe saying otherwise. Yeah, no, I, that, that's, um, I, I know exactly what you mean. I mean, I think the reason why I asked that was because um, I wondered if, well, it seemed to me that, that um, algorithms are perhaps a more directly political aspect of this kind of picture in the sense that turning, you know, turning things, whatever those things happen to be, into data um, is, of course, you know, that process of datification is, is a political actor in the sense that everything is, you know, you're choosing to measure this, this thing rather than that thing, or you're choosing to measure, measure it in this way rather than in a different way. Um, so the, there's, there's kind of choices there which are connected to political and, and broader social issues. But algorithms are, my, at least my very limited understanding, is they are all about kind of obviously making decisions. They're almost like tiny, tiny little social little policies uh, in a sense. And that's both in terms of, uh, you know, how they're used to make decisions about what, what data to collect, but also in terms of trying to shape people's behavior, you know, um, users' behavior, their engagement with platforms and, uh, and, and programs. I think you hit the nail on the head, head there. It's really about the decision-making processes and the epistemologies that uh, underpin them. I mean, the one way that I think about algorithms, and again, it speaks to sort of like the imprecise nature of, of, these, of these areas of study, is that they are almost like bureaucracies. They have imperatives of their own that are inflected by both internal dynamics, uh, internal constraints, uh, technical elements, but also sort of external ontological registers. They had sort of these uh, two types of demands, you know, the social and the technical that are combined within them. So as you say, they, they are inherently political, uh, you know, if we have to see them in their full totality. And too often, we simply see them as merely technical, and they are merely technical, but they're not only merely technical. That's right, that's right. And I think something that, that, that many people have, um, uh, have considered is, um, and something we, we often think about, I think, in our everyday interactions with um, with particularly with uh, with the kind of the internet is that we are swamped with you know information. We often get these metaphors that we've been swamped or under kind of a you know you know a kind of uh, a tsunami of information and of data, um, and no one ever sort of engages with anything close to being the totality of what they could do on a daily basis. You know, um, and so in a, in a very kind of um, um, basic way, our, our kind of experience of the totality of all the, the digital stuff we could be engaging with is kind of um, is managed for us by algorithms. Um, you know, whether that is kind of what comes at the top of the Google search or what, what is on your, your Twitter feed or, or whatever it happens to be. Um, but you you kind of make some really interesting connect, um, um, take a really interesting angle on this, I think. And so you I think early on in the book, you say that um, uh, capital, you, you refer to capitalism as being being responsible for the great simplification of the world. Uh, I think is uh, is what you said. Um, 
And so that I wonder if you could just explain what you what you mean by that and what role kind of algorithms and, 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 and data and these things have, have played in that process and why that's important. Yeah, that's that's a great pickup. The, the so I mean it in sort of two or three different kind of ways. One is sort of a very wonky uh, theoretical element about how sort of through commodity fetishism, capitalism makes everything equivalent, and now algorithms are there to mediate that equivalence process. Uh, that you know through these computational mechanisms, all things could be converted to one or another. So the very richness of an object's or person's unique characteristics are sort of diluted. They're reduced to but its value or its worth, what it can, what wealth can it uh, make, what can it be used for, uh, and or how can it be used to create money, uh, wealth, so on and so forth. So there's the sense that that I mean that that sort of capitalism generally has this impulse to reduce the the qualities of the world to you know simply profitability but there's another sense in which sort of the, you know algorithms are involved in this in this great simplification um, as you sort of said earlier you know there's this kind of discrete management that goes on around selecting and sorting and presenting information to you um, you now get the preferences shaped by uh, algorithms on your Twitter time on your Twitter timeline uh, or your social media feeds, rather than your own full autonomy. It's this type of narrowing down of the options that are presented to you that's done before you get to make the decisions. It's almost like uh, a buffet, but the buffet has been pre-selected and you're, you, what you think are free choices are prematurely constrained. So I mean that 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 our full range of choices, our ability to exercise our freedoms and our liberty is constrained from the get-go because of these types of complex technical systems. And then thirdly, I mean that in a, in a sense that, you know, quantification has allowed, has introduced uh, a kind of creditness to everyday life where all your actions can be put into a register of credits or debts. Like there's that adage that all, uh, all, all data is credit data. Uh, and so we now start to see how through things like Swift codes, you know, money can move around the world very, very, very quickly. You know? uh, but at the same data can be used to limit your mobility. Uh, you are now sort of uh, through your banking information denied a visa to go visit another country, to go visit your friends and family. So there's that kind of constraining of your options uh, that come about through the data that you create and put onto these databases. Yeah, and I think that that's uh, and that's where we start to see that kind of um, the real kind of strength of how that kind of power functions. Um, and I think that I think that people have become very aware in recent years that their data is being used for you know for the, the data that they offer up through social media and other forms is being used for 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 financial reasons for for kind of usually for advertising to generate value for for companies um, and and um, I mean, the UK is just trying to kind of uh, well and, and some other countries at the moment is trying to put through these kinds of laws which are not not just directed at tech companies but at you know the, um, it's been discussed at the g7 i think uh, around um 
um, ensuring that uh, companies have to pay tax on where their, their, their kind of profit is generated, where their income is generated rather. Um, and it is clearly at least partly directed at kind of tech companies in the sense that, you know, they, they, they are often very good at dodging tax because they, you know, they they claim to be based in in Ireland or in the Cayman Islands or wherever it is, uh, and but they're actually obviously generating income in in uh, in other places. But so I think people have become very kind of aware of that. Um, but I think what has be, is still quite opaque to a lot of people is 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 the the power relations that are related to that as well. Um, and um, you know, we exactly what you were just kind of talking about. We um, lots of people have, have, have discussed and, and, and written about um, in the last kind of few years around um, the kind of the Chinese um, it called sesame credit, you know, the social credit system. Yeah, yeah it, it, in China, which um, is, is essentially this uh, the, the kind of black mirror type, you know, kind of scenario where almost every aspect of your life is shaped by by your social credit, which is uh, in, in not actually not dissimilar. I think you talk about this in the book, actually, to um, just kind of credit rating systems that we have in, in all, essentially all countries, I think. Um, yep. Lots of people are not necessarily aware of what theirs are, um, but they have them uh, regardless. But that mostly has an impact on, mostly on, on financial issues, on, on loans and mortgages and, and, and that kind of thing. Do you do you see something like that Chinese system? Is is that kind of is is that a, an extreme of where we, we are currently in, in countries like the, like the UK or South Africa, where you're, where you're usually based? Um, or is is that something more specific to that kind of that that Chinese kind of um, political um, situation? Do you think? I have a bit of a dissenting view on uh, the Chinese social credit system. Mm. You know, fully granting that these types of reputational rankings um, sort of are very sort of bad, very corrosive for social relations. They can use be used to pressure people to act in all kinds of ways that are counter to their interests. And then when, of course, you throw on the politics to this, you know, are you a good person because you support the party or not? And does this lead to other types of life chances or contracts with governments or so on and so forth? Like these are of course, very bad. The difficulty with their system, as I understand it, is you know it's massively decentralized. So there's all this interoperability going on, but that sort of gives more vulnerable points at which systems can break. The one thing that sort of you know, humans are very good at is we're very good at breaking things. And so this like conception, this sort of technocratic conception that like there will be perfect adherence, the systems won't break, people won't be able to work work them out, work around them, they won't be able to hack them, uh, to use a shorthand, I think is a bit naive. I, I, th I think that there's a lot of inflation of the power of these types of things, Not, but I, I don't want to downplay the, the, the 1984 elements of it, that's certainly very, very real. On the other hand, in the West, we already have this type of social credit system that I think is much more redundant, much simpler, and much more effective. It's already our, our credit rating systems through the banks. And these things are fairly recent. It's only in the 1980s that most of them were put into place. And we can see this on how you go get, uh, whether you can rent uh, an apartment. You need to have a suitable credit rating. And in many cases, your credit rating is linked to your socioeconomic status 
or if you are sort of in a working class, how much income does you, do your parents have that they might be able to pay your rent so that you don't miss your first um, uh, month's uh, rental payments? And so again, we start to see how questions of wealth, inheritance, standing, social status, um, um, all come to sort of affect the life courses in, in the West and how data is central to this. I mean, if you had to compare sort of like this, you know, very large uh, Chinese data system compared to the one that we have in the, in the West, which is, you know, run privately uh, in, the interest, in the interest of capital, is very, is very cheap to administer, all things considered, and then dramatically shapes how people have to think about their lives. Um, um, yeah, I think, it, I think the one in the West is much more effective. And maybe it's more effective partly because it doesn't, um, it is a bit less explicit um, in a sense. Um, it's it's not like uh, as it seems, at least is how it's presented in China. That that it's almost you know it, it's very um, kind of on the surface of people's everyday lives. Um, it's a bit more embedded in in these scenarios. And like I say, lots of there's lots of people who who have no idea about the uh, about the their credit rating. Um, uh, I think certainly you know where I am in the UK, but it is affecting them nevertheless. Um, yeah. they, they perhaps don't, don't they, they don't see it that they don't see it as being that being the the issue um, or, or, or um, as being something that would need to be challenged because they're not too aware of it perhaps yeah I mean they've already bought into the idea that you know, debts need to be repaid and that consuming is good that consumption is the way in which we uh, live out our lives we, we purchase our lifestyles um, we purchase goods to make us happy because you know other avenues of, of you know being or happiness are sort of unavailable or harder to uh, come to or arrive at. So I think you've you've got the sort of like you know as much as people talk about like you know maybe in a bit of a racist way about how the Chinese are the Chinese citizenry are predisposed to these types of controlling systems. On the other hand, like I think there's their foundations in the West around consumerism individuality. That sort of make this uh, uh, this credit credit rating system equally, um, uh, you know, for people equally to buy into it or uh, accept that it's uh, appropriate. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think it's probably it'd probably be clear to a lot of people that you you take a, a broadly kind of Marxist um, or at least kind of materialist kind of um, a, a approach to your analysis. Um, would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, it's. I would say Marxian is is Marxian, is the sorry, yeah, yeah. yeah like uh, you know it's. I mean, one of the things about Marxism is there's just so many different types of traditions and branches, and I mean, there's also a lot of you know, uh, a lot of infighting, a lot of family infighting, but you know, I draw upon a range of those branches to try and sort of make uh, the arguments in a, in a book. So, I think one of the things that sort of brings me to the Marxian approach is that. Uh, it centers class struggle. Um, it centers, you know, the role of history and the inertia of history, and also what the the possibility of what history may offer. And more broadly, within communication studies, even digital sociology, I tend to think that Marxian approaches, while there, aren't you know, they're on reading lists, but they're not really listened to. It's almost as if it's a, it's, it's tokenistic. Um, I think our disciplines are very good on 
gender and race. I think we're very, very good. I think we're also very, very good at sexuality, although sometimes that that's, that's also left off a little bit. Um, but I, I don't think that we're as attentive to class as much as we should be or how class relates with gender or how class relates with race or class and sexuality. So I think that I'm always drawn to absences within disciplinary discussions. And at the moment, I see a large absence around the role of class, class struggle, and how capital comes to you know, organize people's lives. Yeah, I think I, I, I think you're absolutely right. I hadn't, I haven't really thought about that, but so, because I think the, the the sort of probably some of the more the more influential kind of Marxist influence, well, well, well uh, analyses of political economy at least within kind of digital sociology will be, I mean, I think certainly like Christian Fuchs' work around digital labour and some of the other stuff on digital labour, people like Carly Jarrett and, and Terranova and Tiziana Terranova, uh, um, people such as Shoshana Zuboff, obviously not Marxist, uh, Marxian herself, but interested in that kind of political economy from a different angle. And of course, the, the kind of the platform capitalism analysis by people like Nick Cernicek. Um, and I don't. Yeah, none of none of those really deal with class at all. I don't think. And Fuchs, perhaps to some extent, but um, uh, in, in a, I think in a different way to, to certainly to your approach. Yeah, I think all of those guys have fantastic points on questions of labor and how and what's happening at the level of labor. And but I think that they. I mean, it's hard to criticize someone for not being able to write. A 700 page book that captures everything we we all can't be manual castells here right like yeah some of us have like other things to do right the other tasks to attend to but um i think with the the questions about labor and platform economies and gig economies are sort of very very good but i don't think they take it to the next step around what does it mean for the large organization of you know distributions dividends within society and what that, that means for you know how a city is organized, how the transportation network is organized, how its healthcare system is organized, and how these things are imbued with class struggle and how in some cases, you know, one particular class is one to the point that class struggle isn't, isn't even on the agenda. Uh, so it's that kind of thing that I think it needs to be real rehabilitated a bit within uh, sort of communication studies, digital sociology the questions of these large-scale struggles within society, and that's not to dismiss the type of work that's being done on the ground. I think those studies are importantly vital, uh, but they need to be complemented with uh, this, the question of stakes. What is the stake within society at the moment? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that one of the ways which you get at that really, um, really well and in a lot of detail uh, in the book, I think, is... Um, your kind of your the way that you bring in an analysis of kind of economic elites into this um, and their uh, their role and influence in in politics and so um, you know you know a significant um, part of the book is is concerned with as we've sort of hinted at earlier the sort of the turbulent political times we you know we've gone through in many countries in the last in the last few years um, and of course. You know, a, a, a big a big part of the, your analysis does does focus on on the American situation as well, in particular. Uh, obviously, it was it must have been, it, well. It was published in February, so it was a lot. Obviously, it was entirely written, I would imagine, before the end of the Trump era. So we're we're in a slightly different situation now. 
Uh, so it'd be interesting to know what you two what you think about uh, what, if anything, has has changed over the last few months. But I was wondering if you could tell me before that um, how you how it is that you see that some of those um, those elite groups, those economic elites, have had a hand in in kind of influencing, perhaps, or, or at least intervening in into politics, and in order to kind of, I suppose, to look after their class interests. Yeah, well, I mean. To speak about this for the American case requires sort of a lot of sort of background knowledge. So I'm going to try sort of just keep it uh, sort of at, at the main sort of bullet points. But the American ruling class, because of the way that dark money campaign financing rules work, uh, they all uh, have a disproportionate clout over the projects and policies elected representatives put forward within uh, the American political system, whether it be at the state Senate races or in the state Senate houses, or whether it be in Congress and, you know, the federal uh, Senate. So it's more likely that their issues of concern will be on the agenda, um, meaning that when it comes to, say, digital capitalists, the types of rules that are written favor them at the expense of most most of the people. So this is why questions of why a lot of privacy advocacy hasn't really got a lot of traction because even though there's widespread support for you know privacy mechanisms, very even basic ones where you have to opt in to certain services as opposed to opt out of them, it's because the elected representatives aren't really serving the people that elected them, rather they're serving the people who give them campaign financing donations. And of course, if you have more money, you can give more. You can give more than a person who doesn't have much money, and so it ends up sort of becoming a self-reinforcing uh, system over here, where those who can uh, give money, their interests are served by the money that they spend, and so this type of dynamic over here sort of ensures that elected representatives aren't really serving democratic ends; they're really serving the ends of uh, the ruling class, the people who give them who give them money. Now, it, it's a lot more technical on the ground and there's, it's a lot more specific when it comes to what types of mechanisms are being used to funnel money to uh, this elected representative as opposed to that elected representative. But that's sort of really the, the, short, the short system, the role of dark money in ensuring that, uh, you know, billionaires have outsized clout within the policy instruments that are being put on the table. Um, yes, uh, but I wonder what what kind of what kind of connection you think there is between. So, uh, why is it that those kind of political elites and, and, and uh, sorry, so economic elites and particularly those kind of tech uh, kind of giants? Um, what kind of connection is there between the kind of uh, suppose the, the kind of the, the particularly right wing kind of populism we've seen in the last few years so I mean I just I, when I was reading the book it made me think about and you may have mentioned I can't remember but it really made me think about remember immediately after Trump was elected and there was this kind of famous photograph um, of a meeting he had um, with, uh, around a table and it was it was essentially all of like the kind of the the, the, the top Silicon Valley people of, of course Peter Thiel who's a, a kind of a you know a well-known kind of libertarian Type, um, um, but also, I think it was probably Sheryl Sandberg or, or maybe Zuckerberg and various people from all these from, who who had kind of presented this, uh, or tend to present this um, this uh, picture of themselves as being um, certainly 
not close to aligned with with those, those kind of Trumpian values that were uh, espoused in, in in that election. Um, and so I think some people were a bit shocked that they, were, that they immediately all ran to kind of to get around a table with him at the time. Um, I think. Uh, but do you think that that is something we should see as surprising that that those kinds of uh, companies that, that that or individuals which will present themselves in one way, not necessarily left wing, but certainly not kind of uh, the, the the kind of right wing populism he seemed to represent, but they would that they would find alliances there. Yeah. Well, one of the thing about like tech billionaires is their 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 political ideology span the same as you know the broader public, if not a little bit skewing more to the right. One of the interesting things is how you know, sort of Robert Mercier was one of Trump's early uh, uh, benefit, uh, uh, sort of money men, right? Yeah, because Trump, of course, never wants to spend his own his own money, right? He always used someone else's money to achieve his ends, and so he very much sort of used Robert Mercier's money to fund his campaign. And Robert Mercier is one of the one of the first people to start algorithmic trading. You know, this instantaneous algorithmic trading back in the 80s and 90s when computer power is a little bit more limited than it is at the moment, but still he had that vision of what types of uh, uh, digital capitalism uh, on uh, the financial markets could could do, right? Uh, on the other hand, you have you know people who are talking about how they there's a selective presentation to the world. We see people like Bill Gates, right, who you know, just within the last month, depending on when you're listening to this podcast, you know, uh, reputation has been a bit tarnished with his encounters with Jeff, Jeffrey Epstein. And so we have, you know, a lot of people within the Silicon Valley trying to present themselves as being socially liberal while trying to nevertheless keep a sort of a fiscally conservative uh, economic agenda. Uh, we see this with uh, Zuckerberg. We see this with Elon Musk. You know, all, all these sort of these big names, Jeff Bezos as well, all of these types of names have this larger sort of socially liberal perspective, but, uh, you know, uh, a bit more uh, fiscally conservative uh, economic agenda. But even within these, these sort of these tech billionaires, there's a couple factions that sort of uh, are more broadly sort of, uh, you know, fighting uh, amongst one another. So one can't say that, you know, all of these tech billionaires, you know, have this particular agenda and the like. Peter Thiel is very, very different from Elon Musk, even though, they you know have a couple of companies that or they share ownership of a couple of companies. They have very different political agendas. I wonder if you could kind of elaborate on that a little bit to tell us a bit about maybe some of the some of the kind of the practical ways in which that that kind of power is instantiated. Um, maybe through kind of some of uh, Trump's sort of political appointments and, and and how that kind of power gets instantiated through those kind of processes. Yeah, I think one of the best examples is uh, the Supreme Court uh, confirmations, the Supreme Court picks that uh, Trump had. We can see again the role of dark money, and in, in you know the, the case of um, the Koch brothers, uh, or one of them has passed, uh, also Robbie Mercier and the like, um, funding Kavanaugh's uh, campaign because I mean judicial appointments are a, are a campaign. So, you know, initially, as the reporting goes, uh, he wasn't on Trump's long list. And then, you know, with a little bit of money donated, I uh, made the short list and then got in front of the confirmation hearings. And that type of uh, conservative element, you know, as some of these tech billionaires are using their wealth that they've accrued through the unpaid labor uh, that uh, 
that they uh, and value that they've created from not from uh, um, um, the platforms we use on a day to day basis in order to fund their preferred uh, Supreme Court justice. And ultimately, with sort of three Supreme Court justices, Trump uh, Trumpism, if you will, that type of way of thinking, to the extent that there's a large coherent ideology there, has now sort of uh, consolidated in the Supreme Court and and that's going to have significant rulings on labor rights, gender uh, relations, uh, sexual reproductive rights, you know, all these types of things. Um, uh, they're going to be downstream and they're going to be, because of the durability and the duration of Supreme Court decisions, they're going to be hard-coded into law for 40 years. So if you will, the, the, the law of code, or code is a kind of law for organizing everyday life with the types of unpaid labor that, we've, that, that uh, occurs on a day-to-day basis, which we spoke about previously, and how that sort of accrues and channels wealth to billionaires, they're able now to leverage that to push for their preferred policy objectives that will you know, far outlive them. So the wealth will ensure, the wealth that they've accrued uh, at, at most people's expense is going to ensure that their family you know, stays at the commodian heights of the American political system for you know, a generation, maybe two. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's, yeah, that's, that's a really fascinating point. And, and, and that kind of connects back to this, you know, to the... Um, to what I kind of hinted at earlier, which is that, um, you know, have things change or is there the potential, is there the potential for things to change, you know, um, even in, even in a small way, you know, we've seen kind of the end of Trump, although Trump thinks he's coming back very soon. Uh, <laughs> I heard the other day, um, but, um, you know, it has been replaced. Uh, no, no one would call um, Biden uh, in any sense a kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, a really radical departure from from kind of Trump. He's still part of that kind of that mainstream kind of that sort of political and economic elite. But the way you see it is 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 this kind of political kind of trajectory, like you said, that, that we're going on. Is is that something that, that that we're going to stick with for quite a long time? And therefore, actually, the um, that connection with with the tech industry and how that and how that performs and how that engages with us is is that relationship going to kind of follow along on this this same trajectory that we're currently going? The short answer is yes. So one of the developments we've been seeing within the last couple months, particularly after the American election and within the Republican Party that has very much gone off the rails around claiming election fraud. There was no election fraud. But with these types of discussions, with these types of now uh, voter restrictions that they're putting into place spread of course you know all these myths are spread now through platforms like the q phenomenon is spread through platforms whether it be 4chan initially but now it's on facebook now it's on twitter now it's on all these other platforms um these types of conspiracy conspiratorial thinking is yeah, effectively in well as reading the other day they're now in churches in the united states mm-hmm. so you have this entire cultural apparatus that started online it started as as a as a bit of a lock, but now has sort of generated momentum, and people genuinely believe this the, these things. The online promotes the online system promotes it. You now have a good portion of the American uh, have Americans believing these things. The stats the other day are like sixty percent of Americans believe, sixty uh, percent of Republicans believe in the QAnon phenomenon. You know that, the, and it's more than just sort of a, a community that a 
for people who are participating is these are genuine beliefs about you know, how there's a transnational elite that you know are stealing children and you know uh, using them uh, to uh, for all kinds of nefarious reasons you know very very this kind of thing yeah 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 yeah, yeah. and so at the moment within just the last couple of days we've seen the Biden administration try to put the we the people act through uh senate the uh, the american senate but it's been blocked there because it joe manchin at least has taken the public face of it but did 10 other democratic senators that don't want the we the people act passed the we the people act uh in short tries to reduce the amount of um the, the amount of money in politics and also to ensure uh civil rights when it comes to enfranchisement more broadly to try to sort of counteract the types of Republican um, uh, um, vote restriction efforts that are being put onto place. I say all of this because it, it all comes down to the attempt by the Republican Party and their allies to ensure that minority rule will become the norm within the United States. People, people often point to sort of Biden being elected through the, uh, with a popular vote victory of uh, 6 million votes or something. But when you start to look at it at, at a much more granular level, at the state level and at the county level, he, Biden only won by uh, 11,000 meaningful votes in particular places. And if that didn't come through, you know, the, the type of de-democratization that Trump would have put into place would have had another sort of four more years and that destruction would have been even greater. By saying all of this, it's a long sort of winded way to say that we don't see sufficient effort by the Democratic Party in the United States to try uh, overturn voter restrictions and disenfranchisement uh, more broadly. The efforts that are on the table have been self-sabotaged by the Democratic Party, meaning that if the margin of victory was only 11,000 votes last time round, you know, it means that there's likely going to be a decimation coming in the midterm elections and I, I don't see Joe Biden being able to sort of keep the presidency uh, in 2024 so you know if Trump or Trump's successor comes on they have the same investment into minority rule and will use the same types of platforms to try to justify and legitimate that minority rule well then we can start to see massive de-democratization taking place across the United States and that's going to have significant uh, consequences for other places within the world, partly because the United States sets the pace for democratization or de-democratization the world over. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's a really convincing but worrying picture, isn't it? Um, and as you said, that a lot of those kinds of views, that kind of conspiratorial thinking uh, and other things have, have become... Co- quite embedded in, in 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 sort of mainstream cultural at least mainstream kind of uh, republican culture if you like or, or or parts of it um but as you said it it it, it was enabled to get there through that kind of broader kind of e- um, media ecosystem um which is an interconnection between you know the, the fringes of 4chan or whatever and the and, and then via reddit and twitter and whatever into fox news and and ultimately into churches as you as you kind of said they're kind of there's the sort of a web connection there of course if if social media just disappeared tomorrow those ideas would probably 
continue um, uh, now because they've been considerably embedded. But do you think more focus needs to be uh, taken, whether that is just it, it, uh, by, for instance, by kind of opposition parties, like, uh, well, not opposition parties, sorry, uh, parties like, like the Democrats, um, or just in, uh, in, in a more kind of um, policing sense, I suppose, in the cultural policing um, of the way, the role which social media and has been, the role it's played in, in the spread of this kind of misinformation and disinformation and the connection that has with, with, with the financing of, of these platforms. Um, so in a very kind of circular way, what I'm saying is, uh, do, do, we need, do we need to be taking action kind of now in order to um, ensure the next wave of, uh, of, 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 of QAnon or whatever it would happen to be isn't having an even bigger impact on, on, on politics going forward? I mean, these are big questions, and I think you sort of pointed to sort of the, the kind of conundrum that sort of activists face in some way, shape, or form. Uh, these companies aren't going to aren't going to cut down on QAnon or do any of that type of tech censorship because it will undermine their, their profitability at the end of the day. So we've just even seen now Facebook within this last week said, "Yeah, we'll keep the ban on Trump until twenty twenty three, just in time." for the 2024 election they, they're kind of hoping perhaps that you know he gets old and doesn't run but you know they're not they're not they haven't they haven't put it beyond the scope that they that uh he won't that they won't capitalize on his popularity for their own profitability later down so you know ultimately the companies that we're speaking about whether it be google facebook twitter regardless of sort of their marketing departments they don't really have a strong stance on them on democratization or not. I mean, clearly they want a degree of the rule of law so that they can have contracts be maintained, of course. But sort of beyond that, it democracy for them is just a convenient management strategy. And if they and if you know fascism comes in and is equally convenient, well, they will they will happily go with that. Ultimately, because the, the the billionaires who uh, run these companies or benefit from them, their shareholders. Are going to be you know a little bit immune to the types of harms that come from that, that type of political system. Their wealth will give them a degree of immunity uh, and distance, and so ultimately they they don't really have a real a stake in the game on how on the outcome of democracy. So at a very personal level, a very economic level, they don't have an incentive to uh, cut down on these things. In fact, rather the more QAnon stuff that spreads, the more profitable it is for them. Uh, so this is the this is the conundrum that sort of activists face, is that these companies almost have to cut off their revenue streams for the greater good, but how many times do, have we seen examples of companies giving up a revenue stream for the greater good? So it, it's and unless of course you have government uh, sanction behind it, say you you must give up these types of revenue streams, um, it's going to be very difficult. But at the same time, we don't really see the Democrats wanting to do that. Instead, they individuated by saying, oh, people are silly, they're kooky, it's misinformation, they just should be a little bit smarter. Oh, we need media literacy. Oh, if, if there was more media literacy, misinformation wouldn't happen. Oh, it's the Russians, as opposed to sort of the internal dynamics of its own political system. There's a lot of externalization and blame, particularly to people who are very vulnerable and don't know, don't know uh, otherwise, 
or sort of stuck in very isolated communities where they don't get other types of information. So this is a lot of, what I'm saying is a lot of externalization, a lot of blame that doesn't really target the, the, the central factor in all of this, which is profit. The um, so a big part of um, something uh, something certainly Trump um, played on a lot um, and a significant part of the kind of the misinformation disinformation uh, circulated around has been um, around uh, kind of largely kind of constructed phony culture wars over various issues um, and uh, and that's been to do with all, all kinds of um, topics which we've we've talked about but also. Um, significantly to do with uh, race-related issues, whether that's to do with kind of to do with uh, gun crime, to do with, with, with um, uh, kind of police violence and and uh, Black Lives Matter and all these kinds of things, and then all the all the kinds of the um, um, bizarre notions around what, uh, uh, and, uh, positioning kind of uh, of um, Antifa versus you know the kind of tiki torches and BLM and uh, all, all these things going on, um, and and. I think that that's certainly something which Trump kind of stoked up um, and he's kind of intersected with the kind of conspiratorial QAnon kind of thinking. Uh, and I think it's uh, where I am in the UK, it's, it's, it's since then has become much more centralised to kind of British politics in, in the sense that there's, there's people right at the heart of government who are reportedly really trying to stoke up kind of, you know, these kind of culture war ideas. Um, but but uh, on that topic, is that are we as kind of people who are interested or in in these issues, or as a digital kind of scholars or whatever, are we paying enough attention to the way in which uh, race is kind of represented, the way race is kind of constructed, or or used as part of these these systems of power and kind of profit making through digital technologies and networks and social media? I think that we're a lot better than what we were ten years ago. Uh, even five years ago, uh, for that matter. But I still think that there are central types of elements where there is a lot more work to be done. Like for one of the things in, in the book, I talk about like the whiteness of communication studies. And if, if you look at the, at the history of the discipline and its type, topics of concern, race is often a peripheral issue in communication studies. It's very hard to center race, center racial experiences, see how race uh, gives different experiences on, of online experiences, you know, how one sees online developments differently through a racialized lens or people who have been racialized. So again, I think there are elements in which we're getting better as a discipline, although I still think that there's quite a lot of work that needs to be done, not really at the level of topics per se, you know, because all, there are people who are studying these topics, but rather the, the, the types of latent assumptions we bring to the table, questions of, of whiteness and whiteness sort of being the methodological neutral point from which to study these uh, types of phenomenon, you know, is too often the unstated assumption. It's whiteness is taken as the neutral stand, st standpoint to which to understand uh, the broader American culture. Um, and it would be interesting if we take uh, a position, we look at, the, at those who are the most vulnerable and start from their experiences and try to sort of develop a conception of justice from that perspective. I think that you know, we all ultimately have a different type of discipline if we, we had a different type of uh, anchoring uh, framework to, uh, to encounter the world with. 
So by that, do you mean uh, not having kind of considerations of race as kind of an add-on, just, you know, kind of a, a peripheral, if you like, but placing it right at the centre? So, yeah, yeah, that's sort of one of the things I mean. The I'll give you sort of another example. Like when I was doing sort of my PhD studies in Canada, and again, Canada is not the United States, but still its traditions of communication studies sort of overlap somewhat. So reading books from like James Curran or um, John, uh, uh, John Durham Peters, you go through and they, they're trying to sort of like look at the topics within the field and race is never there. It's always, you know, you'll get the chapter on gender. Hell, you'll get the, in John, Peter, John Durham Peters' case, you get the chapter on animals, but you won't get a chapter on race. And I think that type of disciplinary legacy is not something that we're sort of past, you know, we're much, what I'm saying, you know, and not to be too mean about it, is much more likely to get books on, uh, you know, that sort of trying, when they're trying to catalog what the field of communications happens to be, or you'll have a chapter on interspecies communication, then you will have questions on race communication. And I think that's a bit of a, that's a bit of a problem. And until we sort of really do a bit of a, an auditing of our own work, uh, and then do the the actions to remedy that. I, I don't think we're going to have an. We're not even beginning. We're not even. We're not even well prepared to have this discussions about things that are sort of more meaningful regarding like communication and reparations and unpaid labor. You know, from uh, different types of communities that that produce more, um, so on and so forth. I think those these things are going to be start to you know come up in in a decade or two's time. But we won't be able to do those conversations well until so we do a bit of ground, ground clearing at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Scott, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. And uh, I'd just like to thank you again for this, you know, for, uh, for taking out some time uh, to have a chat. And um, just to kind of reassert that, like, um, I think this is a really important book. It's also a really, um, really readable book. And, I, I, you know, it's, re it's really kind of... I, I genuinely found it quite fun to read uh, as well, and I think I think other people will. So I, I highly recommend it. I'll put links up to um, uh, on the podcast description to um, where people can uh, can find it. And um, yeah, so please do uh, uh, anyone listening, please do go out and uh, seek out a copy of um, uh, of Scott's book. Um, I, I know you won't be disappointed. Um, but uh, thanks again for talking to me. Uh, Chris, it's been a pleasure as always. Uh, love chatting to you and your audience. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye-bye. So I hope you enjoyed uh, listening to that uh, chat I had with Scott. If you want to uh, uh, get in touch with Scott, you can find him on Twitter at Scott Timkey. That's S-C-O-T-T-T-I-M-C-K-E. Uh, and uh, if you'd like to get in touch with me about anything on the podcast then you can find me on twitter at chris h till and you can find my blog at this is not a sociology.blog and you can contact me through there uh, you can subscribe to the podcast on apple podcasts um, uh, google podcasts uh, spotify and anywhere else where you get podcasts by searching for the for digital sociology podcast and you should be able to find it uh, thanks again for listening and i'll see you next time